0: My name is Owen Flynn and welcome to episode 63 of the Trail Running Ireland podcast. great to be back everybody and on this week's show we take a deep dive into the training method used the devastating winning effect from gold in the 1500 meters to gold in the triathlon in the last olympics we talk the norwegian method of training with Rene borg from running coach ireland who has lots of great training and racing tips to set you up for success in 2023 everybody get your running gear on let's go uh, hey guys hope you're all keeping well great to be back chatting to you and i hope the year has got off to a good start for you training and racing wise it's been a tricky few weeks, I know, with cold, bitter conditions out there, lots of viruses still around the place as well. and But hopefully that's the worst of us behind it now and we can look forward to a great year of training and racing. Speaking of racing, congratulations to all those finishers of another epic Art O'Neill last weekend. Well done all, especially to Ellen Vitting, who was the first lady home in eight hours, 26 minutes. And congrats to our Patreon and friend of the show, Fabio Baltieri with the win in the mail race in 6 hours, 52 minutes. It really is such a special event and it's it's a famous 60 kilometres and it, as the AON website says, um, it retraces a historic escape from Dublin Castle that happened on January 6th, 1592. That night, Art O'Neill, his brother Henry and Red Hugh O'Donnell broke out of the castle and made for Glenmuller. On a freezing night, the three made their way on foot and without the benefit of winter coats having had to leave them in their cells. Henry and you both made it to safety but sadly Art for whom the challenge is named after succumbed to hyperthermia along the way so what a wonderful event and again congratulations to everybody that uh, took to the start line at 11 o'clock there last friday and ran through bitter bitter cold conditions on friday and into saturday and finally just on the art race as well uh, a big shout out to the dublin and Wicklow, wicklow sorry mountain rescue team who were there all day and all night making sure that everybody was okay and the funds collected from the race they do go solely towards the teams of the Dublin and Wicklow Mountain Rescue Team a very worthy cause indeed. well done guys and if you're looking for your next race to do look no further guys than the new Irish Mountain Running Association the Imra calendar which is published which is on their website imra.ie the guys down in Munster are off to a flyer already in January they have four races on the calendar in January and the first time we're racing Leinster is the Brocket Burst on February 5th and then of course over the course of the year on the podcast we'll be hoping to touch base with the organisers and some of the superstars of Irish mountain and trail running and it's top top races such as the Kerryway Ultra Eco Trail Wicklow later on in September so we look forward to talking to some of the um, people behind those races and the, the main stars of those races as well and not forgetting of course our Irish international athletes that I'm sure we'll have on the show over the course of the year they have the world championships in Innsbruck in Austria in June this year. Before we call in Rene and talk all things Norwegian thank you to David Cummins for becoming our first Patreon of 2023. Thank you David and thank you indeed to all of the Patreons who have stayed with us right through 2022 last year and even the Patreons who were there from the very start in 2021 and I mentioned Fabio, Fabio earlier on who won the art o'neill fabio was our very first patreon back in january 2021 so fabio thanks a million for being our first patreon and great to see you enjoying your running and doing so well um at it and for anybody else who would like to support the show um, maybe after you've got out for your run later on today when the endorphins are still flying pop on to patreon and just look us up trail running ireland podcast and there for as little as three euros a month you can help keep us going for another year right time for some of the best coaching tips out there let's call in our coaching guru Rene Board from Running Coach Ireland. Rennie, happy new year and good to have you on the show. And Rennie, you might have seen there a couple of days ago, I published the, the top five shows of last year. And number one was Joe O'Leary's chat when he got on the podium of the Spine Challenger. But a key part, I think, of getting on that number one top spot, it was your training tips for 2022, which I'm sure people found very helpful. And we're looking to do something similar today.
1: Yeah, well, I was glad to see it, Owen. You know, when we have this call, and Happy New Year to you as well, of course, down in 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 Spain. Um, but you know, it's it's nice given we talk to people twice a month that you know we still have something interesting to to say and that people tune in. And obviously, it's not about us either. I think it's about the topics. Uh, so I hope that's you know it's we we just have to keep digging up interesting topics to to talk about. I think we have a very interesting one today. Which, Which we'll come do. to, but, but I'm, I'm glad not everyone feels like my wife, because you are saying to me just this morning here, she says, you know, it uh, I'm glad to see you're, you're far up those rankings, but she said, I, I, I'd just be i'd fall asleep if i had to listen to it <laughs> well
0: hopefully as people are they're out for a jog as they're listening to us and they have all their endorphins going and we'll be able to give them some some good training tips now for 2023 and the topic that we're going to talk about renny i think it's a fascinating one i think over the last couple of months people might have seen the the norwegian method come up in their facebook streams on, on instagram more and more articles about it and um, and the just touched on it, everybody's familiar with, you know, Jacob Ingebritsken, 1,500 metre Olympic champion. Uh, the, the last time I checked, I think he had six European cross-country titles. But not only Jacob and his brothers, but, for example, if you look across all endurance sports, if we go as far as the Olympic Games and triathlon, a Norwegian golf was on top of the podium there as well, Christian Blummerfeld. So they're doing something right in Norway. And I might just kick off the discussion by asking you, do you think they're doing something new and different and wonderful? Or is it maybe just it's what good coaches and good athletes have been doing um, for decades and decades and they're just doing it very well?
1: It's more the latter would be the short answer, but they are doing a little bit of both. Um, And I think that's a good intro to this conversation, because as you were saying, there's so many different podcasts popping up about this topic. And I listened to a few of them, you know, as part of the preparation for this call, and some of them are extremely cynical, you know, they'll pretty much say, it only suits really elites the exact way they're doing it. They're just polishing off existing principles. Uh, There's not a lot here for the average person to learn. And then you will get in both articles and podcasts, you'll get the opposite view that yes they are in many ways just perfecting the principles we already know but they're doing it in a way that's quite interesting for especially runners in the west as compared to say african runners Um, and there are things that are totally new that we may especially if we have a reasonably good training base be able to take and bring to our level and i actually think there's a bit of truth to both views and i think we'll we should be able to get around that in this little talk here
0: Sure. Well, maybe we could start off, Renie, by actually maybe going through the, the the top three key principles of what the Nor- Norwegians are doing so well. Like, if you're looking at, say, a, a diagram of how their training system looks, could you bring us? Could you bring us through it?
1: Yeah. Some people call the Norwegian model basically polarized training, in that it's it's a high volume training plan that has a very heavy emphasis on what some people call zone two as in the middle but in a five stone training system what people call zone three so this is the whole you know sub threshold steady moderate type of zone and they have a very heavy emphasis on that so that could be the summary is that there is a heavy focus on moderate training as part of a high general high volume consistent plan There was another article, I think it was Canadian Athletics, something like that. They summarized it in two words. They said it's controlled intensity plus high volume equals success. Okay.
0: And is that very different, Renny, than what we've been discussing on the podcast for the last two years, where they're talking about actually doing the majority of their running in that zone three, just underneath anaerobic threshold, as opposed to what we've often said just underneath zone two, your aerobic threshold, where, you know, we would advise all of our athletes really to 80, 85% of the time, they need to be in zone one, zone two of our five zone system. So are the Norwegians actually up in zone three for the majority of the time?
1: No, not the majority at all. The the main shift is, see, with all these training programs that you look at, you know, this, whether it's polarized or they call it pyramidal or whatever it is, there's always more of the easy work you know so what we would call zone one and two and what some people call just zone one if it's a three-phase model and yeah. um, the, the real difference is where do you put the emphasis otherwise Um, you could say that in if you actually took say jakub ingebrigtsen's program because he's such an experienced well-developed athlete you would probably see that rather than him doing 80 or 90 percent easy he might only be doing 70, you know, and he's actually doing nearly 15, 20% or, you know, up to 30 at higher zones, but with the, the, the huge emphasis on zone three. But it can get a little bit confusing when you try and look at a training approach and you just try and distill it down to, you know, but what percentage are we running in certain zones because there's actually much more to it than that so Mm -hmm. i I might want to just take us a few steps back on if it's okay with you Sure, Sure. because otherwise it becomes very abstract because really this discussion if we'd had it you know 10 years ago we would probably have been looking at i don't know kenyans or ethiopians and if you go back 50 60 years we would be talking about how great the australians and then the kiwis were and then you know go to the 70s you You'd be talking about how great the Finns were and what's their secret and so on so Mm. this is a, a discussion that comes along all the time and it's obviously the reason it comes up all the time is that we're all hoping that there could be some kind of secret that would short circuit or shorten the path to whatever goals we have a little bit and it tends to be that there is Some nuggets in these different cultures that we observe that you can take and can help you, but by and large, most of the time when you dig into it, what you find is it's actually just the same principles being done slightly differently in slightly different contexts and maybe with more skill because you can obviously do the same thing very well or you can do you can try to do something but you don't have the competence to do it because maybe you don't know how to work out zones accurately maybe you don't actually listen to your body when you train so you you have the right idea but you're not going about it the right way so yeah. when when you look at the norwegian model that's that's really how you need to approach it is go into it and use it first of all to see what are they doing that just confirms the way things should be done so that it's just another way to tell myself, yeah, I really need to start controlling my intensity. I really need to get more consistent so that I'm just, I can get in a reasonably high volume for me over long periods of time. Because that is, that would be something, if you look at the Ingebrigtsen family specifically, you would see that. You would see that even if you ignore all the details about their training, the way they operate and organize their lives and the way their first coach i think he was called too good and then later the father when he took over most of their coaching later on the level of attention to detail and focus on getting the little things right so that these boys could keep training you know uninterrupted and without injury was so high that it obviously gave them the platform to what they're doing today but at the same time it wasn't perfect you know even with all that because we know that the two older brothers were very successful you know more successful than most athletes in europe but they did their careers have floundered a bit here in their mid to late 20s both because i know they had a few kids and things like that but they also have had repeated injuries
0: that shows as well that it's not necessarily the magic solution that if you do this type of training it's not that you're going to be injury free forever and ever because Henry and Philip, they have been injured quite a lot over the last couple of years. But I'll give you a funny example of the attention to detail. You, you, you might have seen the episode on their YouTube um, family documentary. Uh, do you remember any of the episode when, the, before one of their championships, all the brothers went to get nail manicures? just so their, their feet and their toes were absolutely in pristine condition. There was going to be no discomfort when they put on their, their spikes for championship running. And it's actually quite a good idea because how many times have we all had little kind of uh, molestias they say in Spanish, what's, what's the word in English? Well, just annoying nails that are just cutting into your, into your toes as you're, as you're running along. So just one example of that attention to detail.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot more. Like it's it's well worth people's time going to YouTube and watching it because it's it's quite a good show. It's very entertaining as well, you know. And they are, I think, they're good characters. Uh, it, it, the father, especially, he's you know quite extreme, um, but also very motivating. Um, and they don't they commit to their goals. That's one thing that's quite interesting in there. Like they they always reminded by the father that they chose this, and they they're welcome to skip out of it. As two of the other brothers did, and as the sister eventually did, not to spoil the show on people, but she I think she caught quit on her athletic career last year. Mm. You know, and she was reasonably promising, but she didn't really take off the way the brothers did. Um, so that, that it's it's good to see that, you know, if you want to have kind of an overview of if you think you're very talented, what you might have to do if you want to get to the very top, um, because it's not it, it could be much more about how you set up your life, and then you the training details are actually just a little bit secondary, yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's not just about the Ingebrigtsens. You know, as you mentioned, there there is quite a few other interesting names. And Norwegians have been very successful in cross-country skiing. Very successful now in triathlon. They had very good marathon runners in the 1980s. Um, we have even a few good trail runners. Like Steen Angamun is um, is performing really well in the long races. Um, we saw that young female athlete at the European um, in El Paso, Ida Valdal. And yeah. um, we've seen some really good female cross-country runners like and um, So there's, there is a lot going on, you know, and it's it's not really so different. If people had bothered really looking at what was happening in Ireland in the 1980s, they could have learned a lot, you know. And thankfully, there's still a lot of Irish coaches who remember that, you know, and are trying to to pass it down. So we might look at, well, if we assume that there's a lot about the Norwegian model that's really just reinforcing principles we've talked about a hundred times well can it maybe help us view some of them in a little bit of a new light I think that's the first thing we can do and then the second thing we can look into well are they actually doing some details differently that may be worth a try for some of our listeners
0: yeah and I'm
1: conscious as well René that we
0: probably have two different types of listeners those listeners that love their short Emma races you know their Leinster leagues etc that they might be racing from 40 minutes to maybe just over an hour And then we have our ultra trail runners as well that are going to be racing for three, four hours plus. And I'm sure that both sides of the fence can actually get lots of positive takeaways from going through what the Norwegian system is.
1: Yeah, you have to modify it a bit if you're an ultra runner. But actually, I I think it is quite an interesting training system for ultra runners. So we we might go into that if if we try and summarize it beyond the level we did at the start, which was, okay, it's controlled intensity plus high volume. Um, yeah. But what, what does that actually mean? Um, well, first of all, it means that everyone who does this is running relatively high volume. What exactly that means is specific to the athlete and the athlete's development. For people like Jakob Ingebrigtsen, it does mean quite a lot, right? 180 kilometers per week and stuff like that. Uh, but for, for others, the main message is, as, as I think we've said, before you can have volume, you need to be consistent yeah because if you're not consistent you can't tolerate volume and you cannot create volume so maybe for most of our listeners just say well first get consistent and get high volume and then you need to learn to control the intensity that you add and that could be something we've mentioned it when we've said quotes like of lydia you know train don't strain yeah he, he had that built in all other all, all the way back in the 1960s and 70s you know he didn't want people doing too much racing and training he wanted people to stop their interval sessions, not when they hit a preset figure, but when they could do another one, you know, so yeah. he didn't generally, it was very rare that he trailed people to exhaustion, or that he trained them to total failure, you know, he had this other saying, if you train to failure, you train to fail. Yeah,
0: I know and some case, coaches
1: would look at that differently, but it's that's the ethos that you can find in the Norwegian model as well.
0: Sure. And I think as well, in case people are sitting down in front of their laptop and going, to say, how am I going to get to 100 miles a week? How am I going to get to 80 miles a week? Where I think a really good target, I think for, for the majority of people out there is high volume for them might be actually getting up to 60 minutes every time they run during the week. And then there are long runs at the weekend and then get up to two hours. Fantastic. But if you're getting maybe three or four 60 minute runs in and then anywhere from an hour 45 to two hours at the weekend, that probably constitutes high volume for the majority of us. And that's maybe a good target for people as they're setting out over the first couple of weeks of the year.
1: That technique of just run an hour every day, you know, was used by people like Arthur Lydiard with his joggers and others as well later because it's a good self-corrective process. That if you can run an hour every day and you don't have any issues with it, that means you're running the right intensity every day. So you learn to control the intensity so you can train the next day without any issues. And you actually get quite a substantial amount of time on your feet, you know, seven hours a week. That's actually more than what a lot of people manage who are doing maybe a high intensity session or a long run in the weekend. Yeah. So that, that, that works up as kind of a nice consistency base you could say before you go and then turn that into maybe a volume base and and, and nearly all of these you you know if you look at the Norwegian athletes you'll find that they have that first yeah but the, the second part is probably what is more new to people is to to try and understand like what have the Norwegians taken to an extreme by controlling their intensity the way they do it these elites is that they figure out where their threshold is with a lot of precision you know so blood work the whole thing they primarily train below that and not only below that they tend to hone in on the area of sub threshold that gives the most benefit without leaving too much residual residual sorry fatigue for the next days and they do that by taking constant blood work while they train so that's something you'll see in the Ingebrigtsen documentary Now, as a lot of other podcasters I listen to have pointed out, that's very um, laudable. And it's a great way for an elite runner to try and get a leg up, you know, as I say, extra attention to detail, really being precise about making sure that the intensity is done so that you recover quickly and you can do another bout of the same, you know, as quickly as possible. And that way you get your zone 3 volume higher than your competitors. Yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. that, that's basically what they're doing. But for, for the average person, or if you have problems with needles, you don't want to be doing that. But sure. can you can, but can you still learn something? And the answer is yes. What you can learn is if you can, you know, with watches today, watches are quite accurate when it comes to finding lactate threshold, especially if you do some of the many protocols that are out there. And if you do them in a controlled environment, um, then you could get a very good reading And you would be able to establish, okay if I'm running in this heart rate zone or this pace here, if it's on the flat, I should be working in the area that these Norwegians are, are talking about. And that should mean that if I do it correctly, I could do a very good threshold session on a Tuesday and I might already be ready to do another one on Thursday. And again, on Saturday, or if you're a bit less extreme, because that's three threshold sessions in a week, you might be able to do a really good one on Tuesday and another really good one on Saturday. And it wouldn't really impact your volume either.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think
1: the good news for the listeners, many is that it is
0: easy to establish that anaerobic threshold without having to go to the labs or do a big study. Um, and we do it a lot with our running coach, Ireland athletes, where we ask them to run for 30 minutes as hard as they can for 30 minutes, like a race day environment. And then we look at the average heart rate over those 30 minutes and the the pace. And from what we've seen over the years, when we compare it to, say, lab results, that 30-minute test out on the road or out on the trail, it's always within a heartbeat or two of what the lab is telling us. So for for the average person out there, we can establish that anaerobic
1: threshold quite easily
0: um, at home.
1: Yeah, it really isn't that difficult, you know, and if you if you are a level above in terms of the precision that you kind of demand or want, it, it it's always been fairly accessible to get these tests done, you know, and there are many Irish institutions, especially universities that do very good protocols, you know, so if you wanted to go, if you actually want the actual lactate measurements, and then you want to take them away and, and do the training by them, all you have to do is book in. You know, and set aside a few hours, and so it's even there. The barrier is not enormous, you know, yeah. unless you're on a very very limited budget. Um, yeah. but in which case you have the other option, right? You have the field tests.
0: Sure. But was there any indicators given, Rennie? You mentioned there just that sub anaerobic threshold range that the Norwegians are in, and um, was there any indicators or range given? Is that 5% below the anaerobic threshold. Um, did they give any range and any research that you saw on it just to try to try it out ourselves, maybe over the year, to try and get into the same zone that the, the Ingebrigtsens are in?
1: Well, the person who's looked into it in most detail was this Norwegian elite from the 90s called Marius Bakken because he's a researcher these days. And he also went down to see how the Kenyans trained because Sondra Moen, as you know, who was the first European under 206, he he kind of broke through under Renato Canova's tutelage. And Canova, actually, you could say you could be credited for some of the lessons the Norwegian decided to kind of transplant out of Kenya and reapply them in a Norwegian context. And two of those techniques was one, you know, really focusing in on lactate measurements because not all Kenyans do that. But Canova's training groups were, there was a lot of testing going on on these athletes because he was himself a physiologist with the Italian Federation before he moved to Kenya. So he obviously had that was his skill set. Um, so Mario Spaken noticed that this was something that they probably would want to do in Norway because technology was even more accessible. And they felt they could probably, the Kenyans they noticed had a, a superior ability to hone in on the ideal training intensity compared to their western counterparts so in a way they were better at running on field and hitting the right intensity what they did notice is there is a difference in the uh, lactate levels they saw in western athletes and kenyan athletes kenyan athletes generally had lower at all intensities and that's probably because they built these enormous bases down there and maybe some genetic factors and other things but for the norwegians once they brought it back it's about three millimoles of accumulation and generally speaking you know the zone three tends to be placed between two which is the aerobic threshold normally and four which tends to be the marker for the lactate threshold although it's not actually really that simple but it's it's placed between those two so the number three is what mario sparken used that's what the ingebrigtsens have used a lot and that would kind of place you in the middle of that But at the same time, while they were saying they use that quite a lot, they also like to not do all of the threshold work in the same part of zone three. because So they're kind of looking at it saying, well, we have zone three, why not use all of it? Because if you use all of it, you get slightly different stimulus. And another way, they took another technique from Canova, which is called block training. And block training is when you do two... uh, you could say quality workouts, very close together, you know, such as during a weekend or even the same day. So what the Norwegians experimented with, they they wanted to find a way to maximize the amount of zone three running that they could do and then recover afterwards. And they tried three different things. One was to just extend it, you know, uh, like crazy. Another one was to do what's something that Co apparently did in the 1980s, where every now and again, he would do a week or 10 days where nearly all his running was threshold and then the final thing they did was they did double threshold workouts so that means they in the morning they do a threshold workout and then the afternoon they do a second threshold workout and then they'd spend two days usually recovering from that so your man mario sparken claims in his writing that the last was by far the most effective way to do it and the easiest now of course it goes without saying when you implement doubles if you are listening to this the first thing you should learn is just to run enough that doubles are worth your time. Otherwise, (laughs) you don't need doubles. Secondly, if you are used to doubles, you've done it already, you need to start by first doing easy doubles and just get your body used to that idea, you know, easy at each end of the day. And then you can maybe try easy in the morning. I, I even do that occasionally. If I lose mileage somewhere in the week, I might do a quick little easy jog in the morning before the club training in the evening yeah and it's just to get the data add up to a little bit more and sometimes I feel the blood flow in the morning is actually nice, yeah. you know it se- it sets the legs up so you, you would you would do all that first, but they ended up these Norwegian elites with a week that would include two or three of these threshold double days, which sounds on paper like very daunting. but it isn't really because if you learn to control the intensity and you've allowed yourself to build up to, you know, a reasonable, consistent volume of running. Doing a steady workout in the morning and doing a steady workout in the early evening is actually not that difficult. And you mm-hmm. would only get in trouble with that if you don't control your intensity, you know, so you go a little bit too hard or too long and hard in the morning. Yeah. yeah. But, but it, the benefit it, is you get all that zone free, let's say, Tuesday. And then you absorb it the following days and then you do it again. Yeah. Well, what strikes me, Renny, is that to be
0: able to do that type of training, whether it's at that elite level or maybe at a slightly lower level, you need an awful lot of self-control and discipline, don't you? And I think the underlying message there is not to be racing workouts. And if you're trying to stay at that sweet spot of three minimal,s that it can be very hard maybe if you're, saying in a group environment, where you're running with club mates or I don't know how Dinger Britsons did it when they were running together, like as brothers. And um, I'm sure they were first competitive, but they did do it. And they, they managed to not race each other in training. And it's something we've said a couple of times in the podcast that the key to successful training is not racing every rep, not racing every tempo run. So if, if, there's, if there's even one key message from that segment there you spoke about, maybe that's it that they get to that nice sweet spot, it's just it's training, it's not racing.
1: Yeah, you have to they obviously they first of all had the dad. And as I said, if you watch the documentary, you can see why they would do what he says. You know, he's not messing about. And so if, if anyone is is going too fast um and ruining the workout, they know. And of course as brothers, maybe although they're competitive as brothers will be, um they seem to have learned very early to work together. Yeah. Um, and they have a they're obviously intelligent boys and that means they have a good understanding of what they're trying to do that also helps um because you know if you know exactly why you're holding back it's easier to do it we yeah. try to do it you know in in my own club in Glendelock I I'm always trying to bring this across because it is really difficult uh, to get people to toil back a bit uh, and we had a very successful workout over the christmas period where i was kind of trying to sell steady steady repeats instead of people just running you know the one kilometers as fast as they can and that's (laughs) the temptation you know i was trying to really explain it before why we were going to do it that way and christmas was a really good period because people felt like you know maybe just chilling a little bit Um, and there was had been a lot of racing going in around christmas So you you kind of have to bring it across when you think the time is right to communicate it um, so that, and because most people, when they do it, actually quite enjoy it because they notice that it feels pretty good to run at these controlled steady paces. Like it feels like it's proper running, but you're not that destroyed afterwards. And the muscle soreness the next day is, you know, it's incomparable compared to when you do fast intervals. Yeah, I can vouch for that, René, because um, this
0: morning I did a five by five minutes um, interval type workout, but at cross-country pace and a type of a cross-country course. And it was so refreshing to to do something like that, where the whole objective was to be sub-threshold and quite below sub-threshold. Because what I found was before Christmas time and the listeners might remember me saying last in last year's episodes that in 2022, I kind of came away from the mountains and the trails a little bit just to work back on my speed again. So I was doing a lot of 5k type work. And in November and December, I was still falling into the trap of looking at all the splits of my 1Ks of my 400s and the body just became very, very fatigued and I wasn't enjoying the sessions anymore. Where today I said, okay, I need something new. I had a bit of a niggle there a couple of weeks ago. I need to come back and just do something very, very controlled. And five by five minutes, as opposed to say five by 1K or even an eight by 1K, where you're looking at the watch constantly on the flat, to do five by five minutes in the countryside on a rolling type of course it was so refreshing and like that on the fifth one I was there wow this is my last one but I'm completely in control knowing knowing that when it gets to race day you can go up a couple of percentage points and uh, it, it took me it took me about two months to, to get there
1: today but I finally left all that 5k pace work behind which was great today and that is something that I think is interesting for the people listening who race a lot, because this is something you'll hear quite a few coaches talk about. Like it's no good training so hard that you lose the will to race. Essentially, you know that by the time the races come around, you you're really so burned out that you don't have the energy to give your best, yeah. and and that can happen very easily. Um, which kind of goes to if there was a study done where they looked at easy runs, they looked at short intervals, they looked at tempo runs, and then they looked at long, intense intervals to try and find out what seemed to correlate with the most long-term development over a seven-year period. And the one that did the worst in that was the long, intense intervals. And the authors, <coughs> excuse me, they, the authors, they kind of speculated they speculated that it was down to these kind of hard intervals turning into nearly mini races regularly. Mm. So in many ways, they became a way to pull down your condition rather than build it up. So they did see for everything, regardless of what it was, it became more valuable the longer you went along. So that just kind of shows the more prepared you are for quality work, the more you can benefit from it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one part of the the system that we haven't touched on yet is that Inger Brixen, he has the Olympic and European records over 1,500 metres. So he is extremely, extremely fast. And we haven't mentioned that word fast yet at all in our conversation. We've touched on aerobic mileage. We've touched on very controlled and sub anaerobic threshold work. But we haven't mentioned speed at all. But yet, this guy specifically is the fifteen hundred meter Olympic champion. <laughs> How does he become the the Olympic record holder over fifteen hundred meters in, in this system?
1: Well, there's two ways. There's two. Th- there's two ways. That, uh, not two ways. There's two reasons that you can explain that with. One, of course, is that he he has a natural speed right because there's certain level of speed that if you just don't possess it you can't become a certain type of runner you know you can't be a 1500 meter runner certainly you know if if you don't have a certain speed you know i myself know i could barely break 15 seconds for 200 meters so for me to run a sub 2 minute 800 meter i would have been flat out the whole way like i would have had to run my maximum sprint speed so it's quite obvious i could never be a proper middle distance runner, even if I had started early enough and done the right training because mm-hmm. the basic speed wasn't there uh, for some reason, you know, for various different reasons. But for him, they do a few things. The the Ingebrigtsen's like, a lot of people using this Norwegian model, they actually have one session a week that is dedicated to maintaining speed and fast intensities. And in the off season, it seems to be often for them 20 times 200 meter hill reps which is zone four to five uh, with, I think, reasonable recoveries. And they also do a, you know, a more kind of old fashioned run with just leg speed, you know, short leg speed strides. So that means even if they have two or three threshold session in their program, there is quite a lot of, uh, there's still two sessions that look at mechanics, you know, and power output and leg speed, but they're not very, they're not very extensive. Um, and they don't dominate the training.
0: Yeah, again, it's nothing new, Renny, is it or not? I mean, we've spoken about about that before, the importance of adding in strides to the end of those 60-minute runs. And Lydiard had his four-week period of hill work as well. Um, So it's something, I think, that's very enjoyable for runners to do, whether whether it's 200 metres up a hill or whether it's 75, 80 metres on the flat, because it's something that we can do all year round and won't fatigue us. And if anything will help us develop power, strength, and ultimately speed.
1: Yeah. So in a way, what that tells you is you need to you need to maintain a little bit of what you'd call fast work and a little bit of power work, which is usually hills at all times of the season. Um, and exactly how much that is depends on how much running you do full stop, right? So it would be very limited for people who who only run four days a week, right? You know, it couldn't be very much. Lydia did it a little bit differently in that he did the leg speed only while they were building the volume and doing the steady work. And then he had a dedicated block where they really went crazy with the hills, you know, to, to bring the power output up to maximum. But it was the same kind of idea that that was something that had to be there as part of the building process. And then the Ingebrigtsens, like Lydiard and like most coaches, really, they only started to do the race pace workout for a very limited period that's very close to the competition mm, okay. you know, and, and that would mean for instance for Jacob, it would mean 1500 meter work and that sort of thing because yeah. he it, it's obvious that he still needs to work out how to perfect his 1500 meter race pace every season you know before he goes in he doesn't just do zone 3 work and 200 meter hill reps and then suddenly he rocks up on an Olympic track and he runs 1500 meter speed you know that's but it's it's not year round. They and the the lesson for the rest of us is that if we have a specific race pace that is very different from steady, then we do have to do some of it. But you need to just place it in a very very short block, you know, four to six weeks, uh, just before your taper and after you've done all the other stuff.
0: Yeah, and I think for trail and ultra runners, Rene. Doing those types of stride outs and hill work over short distances, speed and power, they're they're so important for just maintaining good running technique over the years. And one great example is um, Ian Keat, uh, many listeners know one of Ireland's greatest ever ultra and trail runners. He was over actually racing in Grand Canaria just before Christmas time. And I'm sure he won't mind me sharing the story because he's very good with his, um, sharing knowledge and very generous with his time for, for runners. And um, He was telling me how that over the last couple of months, he's specifically gone back to work on his speed over those short distances because as the years were going by he wasn't realizing re- realizing it but his technique was just going out the window and he got to the stage where he was looking at photographs of himself or looking at himself in the mirror as he was going by shops or whatever it might be and he was tilted like the leaning tower of Pisa and he said oh I saw myself and I was nearly falling over And I needed, I realized I needed to go back and work on my running technique. And that's from one of the best ultra and trail runners that we have. So um, another good little tip there, I think, for people listening.
1: Yeah, to give people an idea, because I wear a foot pod uh, that's made by Stride. um, And it's, you know, it's very accurate, relatively speaking, in terms of measuring what's actually going on when your foot interacts with the ground. Because how your foot interacts with the ground, you know, obviously changes the type of of muscular and elastic development that happens in the legs. So I was running, you know, the the Wicklow indoor up in the National Stadium on Saturday. And if I look at the statistics there of how the foot interacts, see the ground contact time, for example, is generally under 150 milliseconds, when you're running fast on that surface, and they measure something called leg stiffness. So the the stiffer you can make the leg when it contacts the ground, the more elastic it's going to be. So generally leg stiffness there was about 16 kilonewtons per meter or per minute, okay? So if I then look the next day, we were out in, um, in a park and we were running the Wicklow Masters. And if you look at those statistics, it's a totally different interaction you see. So you see ground contact times that vary from 200 at the lowest uh, to over 400 milliseconds that means the foot is on the ground nearly twice as long in some cases Um, you see this leg stiffness that's created can be as low as eight and no higher than about 13. So you can see they, they are two totally different muscular demands that you're asking and one will create um, a different type of strength than the other but what the type of strength you get when you run very fast and on good surfaces is more elastic and that's the sort of thing you could do if you ran on a hard pack trail for instance and you did a short hill sprint with good form you would see statistics more like i saw when i measured myself on the indoor track Mm -hmm. but you'd see a high power output good that's that means you're working on your power you'd see high leg stiffness good that means your body is learning how to be elastic and you'd see a low ground ground contact time Good because low ground, low ground contact time means better mechanics and less risk of injury.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Absolutely. So, um, so um, what,
0: what was the name of that foot pod um, that you're using, René, Just in case anybody's listening and wants to check it out. Oh yeah, was, it's,
1: so it's it's pronounced stride, but it's spelled S-T-R-Y-D. Okay. Okay so yeah cool. it's a, it's an excellent tool and just as a little bonus when you are on an indoor track for instance it can measure the distance accurately <laughs> you know in the absence of gps which is very useful if you are uh, uh, and
0: did, did you run 1500 meters or were you a little bit long <laughs> uh,
1: it it measured it as 1.54 uh, 1.5. Okay, so an extra 40 meters probably. Yeah, there. I'm surprised. I think it, that might have been, because it's, it's a foot port, so although it has an accelerometer, it still has a calibration factor that could be a tiny bit off.
0: Or it might have been you just going wide as you were overtaken there, you're, you're over 40 Wicklow Championship challengers. <laughs> yeah, well, there. I actually, I that did i did crazy.
1: lap one runner twice, uh, but, you know, and so I had to run around him. Uh, but other than that, I was actually, I was hugging the inside of the, of lane one nearly from the start, and I let all the the young runners, you know, <laughs> away. So it, as you can imagine, it wasn't a, a field of twenty or thirty. So um, there there wasn't a need for for that much overtaking. But you know, either way, it wasn't it wasn't a million miles out. And and it's handy as well for for trail runners. It's a handy part um, because it obviously watts. This is a bit of a side topic, but watts is useful because it's a form of normalized effort. You know, if you want to know, am I doing a steady effort? You can't look at the pace. And secondly, there's quite a lot of places we run where the GPS coverage is still not great, uh, or where there's tree cover. And in those areas, the pod picks that up. Yeah, very good. So, so, so that's that's just my little, um, would say, unsolicited sales pitch for Stride. Is if you yeah. if you're looking for those, you can check it out. But I think back to the the topic of Norwegians. You were saying, I think Owen, that there are people who are not as fast as Jakub Ingebrigtsen. And some of the people who have looked into this Norwegian method, they have pointed that out as well, that that is one thing you need to be careful of. If you if you take away from this conversation that you need to, you need to prioritize zone three and you need to really learn to control how you run those efforts. So you're not constantly going to the well. They're saying that's fine, but they say elite runners are very rarely limited any area of their physiology you know certainly not much that means they very rarely have much need to develop basic speed or vo2 pace yeah so that means they can they can go straight in and there's no real there's there's nothing constraining them from doing high quality threshold training
0: yeah and of course they have all the recovery systems in the world that allow them to do that second sub anaerobic threshold and um, training run in that evening, which in reality, most of us just don't have.
1: Yes, well, even let's say we take that aside for a moment and say, OK, let's forget about the doubles, you know, unless that, uh, you know, you are an as- aspiring international and and you want to, to slowly bring this in. But even if you just want to change your focus to say, okay, actually, I am going to try and increase my zone three and I'm going to, you know, do it like the Norwegians do more of an interval format and less of a tempo format. That's another thing actually that's distinct about their method. That's just, again, to get more zone three volume with quicker recovery. That's, that's yeah. the deal of it. But we get a lot of people in, as you know, who are actually limited in, let's say the pace they can run at their VO2. So their maximum oxygen uptake. So this shows up, by people basically having the pace that is steady for them and the pace that's hard for them are nearly the same. So there's very little to work with. And that means these people don't really have much of a threshold range. And in fact, their threshold pace could be very slow. You know, we see that from time to time. And in those cases, just jumping into a Norwegian model and thinking this is going to be like a silver bullet for me, it will probably lead to disappointment. And that's why we, we wouldn't, for instance, uncritically adopt a method and say, let's just focus all our athletes on zone three, you know, and we'll, we'll only do zone four close to the races. We still want to look at the early test we do, such as the rabbit test we've talked about in previous calls and see, is there actually a limiter in the maximum speed or in the hard pace, or so the VO2 pace for this athlete? And then we would address that first, regardless of whether it's generally maybe a better idea to do lots of zone three. And that is just because the zone three would basically be very poor quality, because it's pushed down by the fact that this person doesn't really have any ability to run fast in any way. You know, so this is just something to be aware of. So if you feel that your steady pace is very, very low, you may have to develop some other basic foundations first before you go back and revisit this whole Norwegian idea
0: yeah and as well just for people to be patient I think Renny as well because from what we've seen over the years from all the different types of training principles that are there you're really talking six to seven years maybe even a maximum of 10 years to really be able to maximize your aerobic base that's there and to develop your aerobic base with full potential so you can really go out and knock out super strong fast and um, zone three zone four even up to zone five and um, running That it does take time that if anybody's new to the sport listening in that not to be too disappointed not to be too upset if there is that small gap there between your your, your easy days and your race days that it does take time to develop and that's okay
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we can see that, you know, none of these Norwegian people were stars overnight, right? As as you say, the Ingebrigtsen started kind of training at some stage from when they were four years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we have to take that into account. Um, But if you do want to, if you want to just try these types of, you know, controlled steady sessions, a way you can implement it without, you know, pricking yourself and doing (laughs) blood tests and all that is you can use more subjective feedback. even if you don't use the heart rate data which we've already talked about you could just get your zones right look at your heart rate look at your paces if you're running on the flat Mm -hmm. and be very disciplined don't try and run as fast as you can all the time have this controlled aggression stop when you can still do more and trust the process but you could also look at more subjective to say it could be say run at your half marathon effort or go out and run moderate or steady or medium, whatever word works for you. You could tell your athletes, you could tell yourself, your breathing should be strong, but steady. Or you could say to your group of of athletes, you shouldn't feel any burning in your muscles when you do these intervals. Mm -hmm. So there's quite a lot you you can tell people. And then of course, you need to design the session for yourself or for the people you're working with in a way that you think encourages the behavior you want to see. Because you can actually do, um, you can do steady intervals from thirty seconds all the way up to ten minutes or more. I have found in my own experience that the shorter you make them, the more likely it is people will violate the the idea because it's just too easy, you know, to do it. If an interval is thirty seconds, it's really tempting to just put the foot down a little bit more. But if I go out and I tell people, lads, we're going to do three times ten minute repeats, steady it's not that nice for most people to run 10 minutes hard especially not when you know there's another two coming you know so you can do a lot there if you know the psychology of yourself of the people you work with design the workout so it encourages people to to leave a bit in the tank and that, that already, I think, will help a lot of people, even if you don't change anything else, because you'll start to control your workouts more, and then your recovery will be better, and the quality of the subsequent workout will be better. And statistically, probably over a long period of time, you will pick up less knocks. Yeah, and one of my
0: favorite recovery indicators, Renny, is are you operational for the rest of the day? Are you in good mood for the rest of the day? Or did you just do it so hard, you overcooked yourself, you're on the couch for the whole day, you're grumpy to everybody else, patience is at its minimum, that's when you know you've done it too hard. <laughs> Renny, when we call it a day at that for today, it was a, a super fascinating topic Lots of good tips, I think, there for people over the course of the year. And if anybody wants to learn a little bit more or talk to Renny in more detail about their own racing and coaching and training plans for the year, runningcoach.ie. And Renny, there's a couple of limited spots maybe available at the turn of the year
1: yeah we still have a few spots available but it, it is actually you know we're delighted to see obviously it's filling up pretty fast and we are very busy right now you know it's uh i like a lot of people you know it's a new it's a new year new goals and for the whole fitness industry including us this is probably it's one of the the peak months but yeah if you do want to work with us this is a good time to come on board it's an exciting time of the year and I thanks a million and look forward to talking to you in about two weeks time all right on cheers
0: that's a wrap for this week everybody i hope you enjoyed that extended coaching and training tip section there from renee and before we go good luck to joe o'leary who was the special guest on our most listened to show in 2022 right back in january last year joe is currently fighting for a podium in the epic spine race over in the north of England. The 268 mile winter ultramarathon encompassing the entire length of the Way, finishing on the Scottish borders. Joe is in fourth position as we record hunting down the british runner douglas Sinnis, who has roughly a five mile lead at the moment on tuesday night over joe but joe there is still plenty of time to go come on joe you can do it get on that podium mate hopefully you will and until next time everybody enjoy all your race planning for 2023 everybody get your running gear on let's go